Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff Sitting here with Robert Hutton and Robert, the you can smell the croissant. Bonjour, Deacon Jeff. That's we're right. back in France. I know. In that, I love that music, mm-hmm. and I love the idea that we're here in France in the French Catholic Cafe. That's right. Which the accommodations are much better than what we're used to back in Memphis. That's exactly right. It's always such a great time, and we're on pilgrimage here in Lourdes, France. And uh, it's always such a neat thing. We, you know, we it's the places you go and the people you meet, right? That's correct. And so we have so many neat uh, uh, shows to bring you here from France. And so I hope you stick with us as we we start this and we start with our first show here. And we have a great guest. A great guest talking about a great man. That's exactly right. And I think all people will agree on both counts after we finish the, the, the show. first pope I ever remember, John Paul the Great. That's exactly right. Well, we have with us we have Margaret Milady, and she's a dame of Malta, and she's the president of uh, the Federal Association of the Order of Malta. Uh, Margaret, welcome to the, the luxurious corner booth. Good morning. Yes, it's good to be with you. So uh, we uh, got word that you've, you've written a book about um, Pope St. John Paul II, and, uh, and, you, and you knew him as well, right? Yes, you I, had a, I had a chance to meet him several times and uh, talk with him, and he was just a fascinating person. And... Uh, that's why I chose to write about him when I was in Rome. I was living in Rome at the time. Right. The first time, of course, was with my husband. My husband was the U.S. ambassador right. to the Vatican. And so when he presented his credentials, it was a very formal type of uh, meeting in which, you know, we spoke very formally, you might say. But even there, he was a very warm personality, mm-hmm. and he put you at ease. So what was that like, though, the, the first time you met him, just to walk in? Well, it's just, you know, as everybody was in right. those days to, to meet Pope John Paul II. He was an exciting person, mm-hmm. um, you know, first pope from Poland, and, and he was just a wonderful, he had wonderful eyes. You know, when you, when you see pictures of him. They look, they're piercing. They're they piercing. They seem to look right into you. You know, they, and it was just really very exciting to, to meet him then. Yeah. And Margaret, I've always heard he was a brilliant man and spoke like 18 languages. Or Is that, yes. is that true? Or? Oh, yeah. He, he spoke many languages. He learned many languages because he wanted to speak to the crowds out in the, in the piazza, you know, and right. on the Wednesdays, uh, the audiences and after the audiences and on, on special occasions. He wanted to speak in their languages. And you know that he didn't really limit it just specifically to, um, to the folks right there in St. Peter's. Square, right? He he was uh, he was a, a pope of the world. Well, that was it, and that's what fascinated me is that he was constantly traveling. So a great deal of his papacy was built upon those international uh, trips that he made. Right. Was that unique, Margaret? Had that happened. Actually, uh, Pope Paul had visited the Holy Land, and he had gone on a, on a few trips before, but they were very few and far between. Right. And then when um, John Paul came into the papacy, he decided that was going to be his way of speaking to the church. And I found it very interesting because he would have the formal parts, of course, the masses. uh, And when he came into a particular country, there would be a wonderful pontifical mass. 
and uh, as you know, there were just thousands and thousands and thousands sure. of people at these masses, outdoor masses in mm-hmm. many respects. And um, and there was this feeling; it gave you the feeling of the universality of the church and the, right. and the um, power of the church. And the fact that all these people really wanted to be united with the Pope at that particular moment. Right. How beautiful. And I, I remember um, uh, as a young man when he came to the United States early in his papacy and he was uh, uh, in, in Chicago. And we, we drove from Memphis, Tennessee to, to go to Chicago. And, you know, it was a very intimate setting. You know, me and maybe two million of his other friends. His <laughs> right. friends were all gathered there. And it was beautiful. And you got this sense of um, profundity that just something big was happening. Uh, and that's neat to see. You know, that that was the point uh, that he tried to make. In fact, there were several people saying, oh, we would like to have some smaller meetings, you know, so that we could really delve into some of these issues. And that wasn't his point. His point was to show this grandeur of the of the church. Right. He gathered the people in that way. Mm-hmm. And people. It was, he really engaged, and a lot of people uh, loved him for that. I mean, you yes. saw the, the pouring out of... Uh, a love that came even during his uh, funerary masses, you know, at the end, uh, how many and, people came. And then he did these meetings with the youth. Oh, yeah. And those were just fantastic. I mean, I remember looking at um, uh, one that, that had been videotaped in uh, California, I believe. And he was on the stage, and then on another part of the room there was another little stage and on that little stage was a um, musician who had no hands he was Mm. playing with his feet and John Paul was so moved he jumped off the stage literally and ran over to him and put his arms around this person and it was just so moving you know what else is interesting, Margaret, about John Paul is the fact that he could draw such crowds. Is there anybody else in the world that could, week after week after week, draw crowds of hundreds of thousands of people? I know, and and it, it and as I and as you pointed out, he would always try to speak in their language, um, and then there were those private moments. I mean, it, it was the large crowd, but he always found a way to work in some way to demonstrate a. Uh, person to person, right, a connection, yes. right, exactly, and, and that is a skill, uh, really a charism. It's a gift mm-hmm. uh, for him to have to be so public, right, and to be to right. be the face of the church to so many people, and yet at the same time to make it an intimate experience. I know that was a, a particular gift that he had. Was yes, it? and of course, you know, and he would people, you know, which was very unusual at the time. You had to you have to sort of contrast this with a with a papal formality that we had right. all been used to in the past. And and then you had this John Paul II who spoke in I, for example. Rather um, than the royal we. Rather we. than the royal we. I mean, uh, it, I was... Pope um, Paul had... I remember reading this letter or, or speech that he had made, and it was after... Uh, Pope Paul's father had died, and he was talking with the royal we, and we right. were trying to figure out what are we, you know, <laughs> what is this all about? We're mourning the death of our father, and I'm thinking, huh, you know. Yeah. But then, then John Paul II came. Actually, it was John Paul I who started to use we, uh, the I, 
but he only lived 30 days. Right? Yes, exactly. Well, he set something in motion. But and he then, did. And John Paul II came in, and then he followed that. And but wasn't that beautiful that even in his name, that he would take John Paul II? Yes. You know, mm-hmm. a, a man who, by all rights, John Paul I maybe didn't have a chance to really have a legacy. Mm-hmm. And then so, and the, so John Paul II actually gives him a legacy by sort of yes. like building on yes. what he had begun. Yes, that's, yes. That's a, it's a beautiful sense of, of the man of John Paul II, isn't it? It is. Yeah, so... Um, and, and so, therefore, John Paul II, using, just by using I and talking about himself and his own experiences, if you recall, sometimes, you know, he would relate about his meetings with young people in Poland on the mountains. Right. He'd go to the mountains on some summer trip with them. And, um, and so you knew more about his personality before right. he became Pope. He seemed to be a human being. And, yes, yeah, and you really knew a lot about his childhood and his. Um, well, just the pictures of him, mm-hmm. you know, when he, doing the skiing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, really. In, in fact, one time we were in Rome, and my daughter wanted to go skiing, so we went up to the mountains to go skiing. And half of the uh, ski slopes were closed because the Pope was skiing. Was skiing. Well, very good. <laughs> very good. That's a, that's a time. If you're going to have a skiing accident, you want to have it at that point in time. You've got the Pope there <laughs> right. to give you a little blessing or something. Yeah. So it's wonderful that you're here to tell us about some of this stuff. And I think we, uh, you've written a book, and it's called The Rhetoric of Pope John Paul II. Yes. Now, how long ago did you write that book? Oh, well, it was quite a while. It was when I was in Rome. I started to write it. Um, so I would say mm, um, maybe 97, 98. Okay. Right. Know. So it's, it's, it's been out there. So yeah. is, it a, is it a collection of, of stories or no, memories? No, actually, or it's it? talking about um, about the Pope's international trips as a new form of communicating with the church. Ah. And, uh, and so I talk a lot about the f- how he communicated about the sacred um, and how he contrasted, just as we were talking before, about, you know, you can talk about uh, the sacred, but you only know that in contrast with the secular. Right. So it's... Um, uh, and, and he did that very well mm. because, you know, he would... As we were saying, he would have these wonderful uh, masses that gave you this mystique and the mystical aspect of of the church. Uh, And yet then he would meet with youth and swap hats or something. We come back. We'll talk more about... uh uh, about this book, where to find it, but also really mm-hmm. what's, what's inside, though. So we'll peel back the cover there and talk a little bit about that. Okay. We'll do that in just a second. Before we do that, online folks at home, we have a great website, www.thecatholiccafe.com. And also, I'd love to hear from you. I get so many great emails, Robert, from all over the world. It is folks amazing. Listen, yeah. yeah. And uh, so uh, send me an email, deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. And with that, come on back to Lourdes right after this. I'm Bess Drzemski, and this is another great moment in church history. In 1904, a humble religious brother named Blessed André Bessette began building a shrine in honor of St. Joseph in Montreal, Canada. Brother André was born into a family of ten children. He said his great devotion to St. Joseph came from the example of his father and the teaching of his mother. His father was a lumberjack who died in a tragic accident when Andre was only nine. His mother died three years later of tuberculosis, which left all ten children as orphans. 
When Andre was only 12 years old, he was forced to leave school and travel in order to find work. He wandered from job to job and eventually ended up in the United States as a textile worker. He was a diligent worker and excelled at his trade, even though he was in poor health. In 1870, he returned to Canada and applied to enter the Congregation of the Holy Cross in Montreal. With some reluctance, the superiors of the order agreed to accept him and assigned him the menial tasks in the community. Just as St. Joseph said yes to God's call and obediently consented to Christ's mission of salvation, Blessed Andre carried out his duties with a spirit of obedience and joy, even though they were the most humbling and tedious of tasks. His superiors kept a close eye on him, wondering if they had made a mistake in accepting him to the order. Brother Andre said, When I entered the community, my superior showed me the door, and I remained there for 40 years without leaving. Blessed Andre began to greet the physically and emotionally troubled who came to visit his community. For nearly 25 years, he received visitors for six to eight hours a day. His reputation for healings and cures became widespread. He did not like being known as a miracle worker. He once said, People are silly to think that I can perform miracles. It is God and St. Joseph who can heal you, not I. In today's modern culture, St. Joseph stands as a model for all Christian fathers. He emulates what it means to protect, provide, and nurture a Christian family. Knowing this, Brother Andre said, When you invoke St. Joseph, you don't have to speak much. You know your Father in Heaven knows what you need. Well, so does his friend St. Joseph. Today, the Shrine to St. Joseph, built by Brother Andre, is now a magnificent basilica that thousands of pilgrims visit each year. They come seeking the same healing and renewal thousands receive from Blessed Andre during his life. I'm Bess Drozemski, and this is another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And we're back in the luxurious corner booth, the French corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. Uh, Robert, we're having a great pilgrimage. We've just started it off. Talking about a great man. That's Saint exactly John right. Paul the Great. Oh, yeah, John Paul the Great. Uh, and what a wonderful man. Uh, and uh, really, uh, again, for me, he's the Pope of my generation. He's the well. first Pope I remember, Deacon Jeff, yeah. as, a, as, a, as a child. And I'm glad we have an expert here to tell us about that. That's exactly the right. So we, we have Margaret Milady, and she's the president, uh, and she's a dame of Malta, and president of the Federal Association of the Order of Malta. And um, so in your book, which is, again, called The Rhetoric of Pope John Paul II. Now, if, for those who are interested, if they don't want to check this book out, they can find it on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, so in the rhetoric, you're, you're, you sort of briefly started to tell us that when you talk about the rhetoric of uh, Pope John Paul II, just how he communicated and seeing his his travels as really an expression of his reaching out to the universal church uh, to, to gather people in. Tell us about why, yes. why, you, why you felt it was important to write a book like that. Well, I felt it important because, because that was really a mark of his papacy. Um, you know, he especially in his earlier days mm-hmm. in the papacy, he was always traveling. I mean, he was doing four major trips a year. Right. Did popes so, do that before? How did popes communicate no, before John Paul no. II? Okay, well, you know, that's a very interesting question because um, actually,
actually popes did pretty well in communicating, and uh, they were some of the first some of the first to um, start radio programs. For right. example, you know Marconi and the, and the radio was right in Italy, and they actually established their own radio program, and it went all over Europe, and it was very important during the war. During the Second World War, right, and and then obviously during the whole period of of the um, communist uh, countries mm-hmm. and getting the word out to communist countries. So, um, so from that point of view, they started using um, modern means of communicating. But there's a there's a such a great and even a beautiful di- uh, difference in. Uh, it's great to be able to communicate that way using the media, mm-hmm. right? And they and they used to write it all on animal skins or whatever and send it by donkey across the Europe or whatever. But really to be face-to-face with, with a pope, to be yeah. in, in that right. context. Like I talked about being in Chicago with two million people. Right. It, was, it was beautiful to be there at that moment. Well, that was the point because prior to that, you know, you'd have to go to Rome to actually see the pope. And, um, and here the pope was coming to the people. Mm. And, um, and they spent a lot of time planning for these trips. But that's what I found very, very exciting, is that, um, you know, a lot of people thought, well, they're sitting in Rome planning this trip on their own. But no, um, I, I really took apart one of the uh, U.S. trips to find out exactly how it all works. Right. And the church, went, at least the people in Rome planning the visit, would ask the country to come up with ideas. Okay. And I had the privilege of seeing some of the files of how this trip was planned. And at the U.S. Conference of Bishops, there was a person who was putting together all of the suggested items, suggested themes, even suggested speeches of the Pope. And so then I compared that with what happened and I found a lot of phrases were taken from those suggested items and, and, and certainly themes and um, uh, points that one, they but wanted to But see, again, that sounds like the man, doesn't it? The, one, the, the Pope went, that wouldn't Im- impose no, upon but would, no. would extract and then, and then develop in the context of the universal church right, with the people. He would communicate with the people. So you had this feeling that it, you know, it was the Pope meeting the people. But the people telling him, you know, what was important. Right. What it. was on their hearts. Yes, and, and, exactly. And then he would address it. How beautiful. And he, I was very impressed with that, really. Well, um, uh, uh, did people think that the peop- that people would come out to see the Pope? And when they started all these travels, were they worried that people would not respond like they did? Or, I mean, were they surprised about how many people would come to see the Pope when he traveled around the world? Um, I, you know, they were used to crowds in Rome, obviously, of of you know, people coming to Rome. Uh, right. And so I, I think they probably, maybe some of the planners in the, in the early days were thinking, oh, is this really going to work? Right. But once they started to do it, they knew that this was, this was going to be very successful. Oh, and, and, and so many, uh, I still remember, uh, you know, as a kid in grade school, seeing, a, um, you know, the, the pictures of like, uh, mm-hmm. The Pope and the gatherings, and, and just being amazed because you know when you you mentioned you made a phrase or, or talked about like sort of getting a, a feeling of the universal church, mm-hmm. right? When you would see these big gatherings and you, you'd get a sense of that. Yes. You know, we we usually as Catholics have our parish experience, and we think that's church, that's universal church, and it is in right. our local context. Right. 
and yet to be able to get a sense that there are, you know, millions and, and in fact, billion Catholics, you know, different languages, different cultures, and yet all gathered uh, as one, you know, one, one shepherd, one flock, and how beautiful that is. That's right. And I think people who were actually at these uh, events came, became closer because they felt they're all in there for the one purpose of, of being with the Pope and, and manifesting their own, um, uh, their own spirit in the church. Right. So I think they became, you know, very close to each other. They realized that this was the church. You know, yeah. it was just not, you know, an individual relationship, but a relationship of a universal church that people are important. Right. You know, and, we, and again, important our, for the our separated brothers and sisters, you know, the, uh, our, our Protestant friends who will, will talk about that personal relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And yet we as Catholics have that personal relationship, but also in the context of a universal relationship. Well, it's, it's a universal community that yeah. we, we have. And, and to be together and, and understand that, that that was one of the messages that Pope John Paul II And that's how he send. operated, too. Again, you're yes. talking about his, uh, you know, in, in your book, you know, that's the rhetoric of the church is really, you know, that, that personal and yet universal. Yes, and, and being and, and understanding that the community has a role to play. You know, that this is so important that we think of each other as church mm-hmm. as being um, members of the church. Right. Family. Why, family. why would you call him a great, you know, we call him John Paul the Great. From your experience mm-hmm. with John Paul II, uh, why was he a great pope? I mean, I know he was, but let, what, what would you say if you were asked that question? What's well, I, I do think, because I'm, from my point of view of looking at in terms of, of trying to relate to uh, all of the nations of, of the world and to bring them uh, to an understanding of a universal church. I think that was very important. Um, but I could switch gears here a little bit because he also was there at a very important political time of the church. And he, um, you know, have seen, saw the uh, the Berlin Wall come down. Was right. he involved with that? Oh, absolutely he was involved, very much so. And uh, he was involved in many, many ways. Uh, um, in, fact, in fact, they're still just really unraveling some of the connections oh, that he yes. had. That, you know, we talk about his, that, that public face where he, he reached out. But there were also, at the same time, he's writing these beautiful documents that are deep and profound, philosophical, theological, well, brilliant works. And he was engaging with, with world leaders. He, and, uh, had, he had a conversation going with Gorbachev in the Soviet Union for a long time before our State Department knew. Wow. Um, and that I know for a fact. And, and it, it was interesting because uh, when we were there, he, um, he, uh, it, it was a time when um, President Bush was going to be meeting with, um, with Gorbachev. And prior to that, the, it was announced by the Vatican, that Gorbachev would meet with the Pope before meeting with President Bush. And not only that, that Gorbachev was sending these wonderful icons to the Vatican for a, an art exhibit. Hmm. And we all went to the opening of this art exhibit, which was absolutely incredible, with Gorbachev and, and the Pope. And it was just... Amazing, 
amazing. Yeah. And um, and and then you know, the president called my husband, President Bush, and said, "Find out what they talked about." <laughs> so my husband had to go and try to see the Pope and say, you know, well, and ask the Pope if I could trust him, if I could trust Gorbachev. And my husband did. I mean, he asked that question. Now, the Pope never gave him an absolute answer. Right. But uh, but the way he gave the answer was, you know, I think you can, you know, and he went back and, and advised uh, President Bush that, I think that you can work with this man. Right. And he and that, was instrumental in bringing the Berlin Wall down. He was, and it, absolutely. So you see the connection there. <laughs> yeah. Isn't and how that important. interesting how the yeah. president wanted to find out the Pope's opinion and, about Well, that's really woman. about, that's about yeah. Margaret Milady here, oh, though. You know, but, she's, <laughs> she's really the, the, the linchpin you know, that is holding all this together. But you know that, that um, afterwards, after President Bush was out of the office, he said to my husband, he said, you know, that was very important that I learned. And he was on Air Force One going to the meeting at that time and when he had the phone call with my husband. Right. And he said, you know, that was extremely important to me. Mm. Uh, going into that meeting with Gorbachev. That's amazing. And it, and it really, he said it really turned my, you know, viewpoint around, and we were able to work with him. That's, so. that's, that's wonderful. Now, did you have many opportunities uh, to, to meet the, the Pope? I, you know, I, I, not, you know, I mean, we met, we were always... Hey, one is more things. than me. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, one that was really exciting was that um, President Reagan came after he had been president, and he wanted to visit, uh, he and Nancy wanted to visit with the Pope. And so it was down in Castel Gondolfo in his summer mm-hmm. residence. And so after the meeting, he came out, and my husband and myself were the first ones to greet them after coming out of the meeting. And we had just been to Poland, and we had visited his birthplace. And I said that to him. I said, you're... you're you know, Your Holiness, uh, we were just at your birthplace. And he started to laugh. And he said to me, can you imagine that they're making a museum out of my little apartment where I lived <laughs> when I was a little boy? And, all that and humility. He, in, it was in such the, a humility. And we all we, we, we laughed, and it was just the most that wonderful, wonderful moment. You know. Well, Margaret Milady, we thank you so much for taking some time with us to tell us a little bit more about the man that we all really think we know so well, and yet we, we're continuing to learn so many wonderful things about uh, Pope St. John Paul II and how wonderful that is. And you've got the, this book, The Rhetoric of, John, of Pope John Paul II, if people want to check that out, to go to Amazon. Thank you so much for coming, and, and thanks for kicking off our Lourdes pilgrimage here, our series of radio shows that we'll do here from Lourdes. And uh, it's been a pleasure to have you in the luxurious corner booth. Thank you very much, and I'll thank you, you what, for what you're doing. Let's, uh, let's ask Our Lady to be with us, and we'll, we'll close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Hail Mary, full, full of grace, grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. And Pope John Paul II, pray for us. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. 
The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.